None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Episode 76, Part 1 of a two-part series. I segued from helping people introduce them to Kratom and change their lives to this Etsy group where I started the American Kratom Association. And if not for the work done pulling the grassroots together, we would not have won. Founder and former member of the American Kratom Association, Susan Ash. So I just wanted to get a little bit of your background, if you don't mind. So where did you grow? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. So in the South, and the largest one of the largest Navy bases in the country. Your dad was a rocket scientist. Did he? Did he work for the Navy? My dad did not. He was a professor at Old Dominion University and also worked for NASA. And in fact, he is a rocket scientist. He just retired at age 80 and retired from teaching. One of his great discoveries occurred in the 1970s, and he just developed a way to make oxygen from the Martian atmosphere so that astronauts don't have to bring fuel with them or oxygen to breathe. And his invention, they named it MOXIE, and it proved to be a success in the latest mission to Mars just a few months ago. So I waited my whole adult life, my teenage life. I've been waiting since the age of 12 to hear if my dad's invention was going to be a success. And it was a success just just a few months ago, this past summer. And all of us, or no, this past winter. And so my family celebrated uh, just before his 80th birthday, and then he turned 80, and he is still doing research to this day. That is awesome. So yeah, so he came, that is so cool. So he came up like with the theory, and they, it was just put into practice. Exactly. Yeah. He was. He came up with the theory, and it was expected to be successful, based on what they knew about the atmosphere, and it was successful. And so, I come from an academic background. A lot of people ask if I have a Navy background. I have an academic background. My grandfather was actually the first president of Old Dominion University, which is in Norfolk, Virginia, and that is where I got my bachelor's degree. So I was lucky to be family of the charters of the university. Would you get yeah. would you get your bachelor's in? I got it in communications mm-hmm. and biology. Yeah, that sounds like a perfect uh, <laughs> background for the for what you did later. Yes, and then I got a master's degree after, but that was my career before I started the AKA. So I have this little story that I wrote. It's pretty short. It's about, it's my story. It's about my background. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Go ahead. Yeah. I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. The Lorax by Dr. Seuss reminds me of my former life as a professional 
paid tree hugger, a never ending source of amusement for my family and friends who had watched me turn into a hippie. Well, as close as I could get at age 16. From that book comes my motto, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. I used to speak for entire forests, large ecosystems, our whole planet depends on. When I went into the Kratom issue, I spoke for one tree that saved my life and for the right to purchase and consume it as I choose. I was born and raised in Virginia, and I began my career over 25 years ago as a park ranger in Bryce Canyon National Park, Utah. I'd received my bachelor's of science from Old Dominion University, like mentioned, and was already a budding environmentalist, having founded ODU's first environmental club. I spent three summers proudly wearing my Smokey Bear uniform, surrounded by the majestic beauty of a park owned by the American public. A lifelong obsession of mine began with protecting public lands and natural resources. And I left Bryce in pursuit of a master's of science in forestry from the University of Missouri, Columbia. Degree in hand, I went out west to spend many years living my dream of getting paid to literally save the earth. This required frequent outdoor site visits to the forests and wildernesses I was trying to protect. And it was the perfect job. It was like the Lorax's my whole life, too. I moved to Oregon in 2000 to run wilderness, old growth forest, and endangered species campaigns. But I began experiencing a myriad of inexplicable health problems that ranged in severity, and I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and treated with heavy narcotics, a lot of narcotics. Not only did they work, they gave me energy, they decreased my crippling anxiety, and they made me happy. Every time I had a prescription filled, I felt like I'd hit the lottery. And 2008 plagued with too many symptoms to list and getting sicker and sicker. I became unable to care for myself, heartbroken and devastated home. I went to live with my parents after making sure my doctor sent me off with three months worth of my pills, of course. Two years went by on these meds while suffering symptoms such as temporary paralysis, confusion, exhaustion, fatigue, slurred speech, unbearable neck, back, hip, knee, and joint pain, daily flu-like symptoms, drenching night sweats, fevers, chills, migraines, digestive problems, you name it. This was not fibromyalgia. I traveled from doctor to doctor in search of answers, and I finally got one in 2010 when my pain management doctor tested me and confirmed my diagnosis. It was late-stage Lyme disease. All those years spent in the woods, dozens of doctors familiar with my vocation and not one thought to test me for Lyme disease. My case was so severe, I began a 10-month journey with daily intravenous antibiotics, followed by nearly two years of expensive, non-traditional, not covered by insurance and experimental type treatments. As my tolerance grew, I was prescribed higher and higher doses of morphine. At one point, I made a decision with the help and encouragement of my family to stop taking morphine and see if I could tolerate the pain on my own. I went to a doctor who was prescribed me a week's worth of Suboxone, a drug designed to limit withdrawals, and promised me 
it would be a pretty painless process. But with that promise came accusations that I was a drug addict. I left his office offended and angry, but determined. Sure, I took more than prescribed at times, but I'd never gotten my meds from other doctors. I never doctor shopped. I never bought pills illegally. I wouldn't dare touch a needle and I'd never run out early enough to suffer withdrawals. I didn't know anyone who abused drugs. I dabbled in recreational drugs when I was younger, but that was the extent of it. The doctor neglected to give me proper directions for Suboxone. I took it before I had withdrawal symptoms and my body went into precipitated withdrawals that lasted 10 full excruciating days. I was convinced I was going to die, and if I didn't, I wanted to. I thought I was losing my mind. You'd think that entire experience would have sworn me off narcotics for good, but my pain was just too severe. And in 2010, I went running back into pain management. I was prescribed even more powerful drugs. And for the first time in my life, I started running out early and getting a monthly quote unquote flu that always lasted three to five days. That's when I discovered Kratom. Of course, we know the leaves of the Kratom tree uh, come from Southeast Asia. It's in the coffee family. They've been used for hundreds of years to treat opiate withdrawals and pain, among other things. And it was suggested to me in an online support group for Lyme disease to avoid withdrawals. I ordered it online and it worked but I kept going back to the pain clinic. I kept getting newer and stronger medicines. And then it all came crashing down around me. There's no need to go into detail here. It's a familiar story, but let's just say an unexpected visit to see me by family members wound up becoming a 45-day vacation from life that I didn't ask for and so much more. I still suffer many symptoms from Lyme disease, pain, fatigue, chronic nausea, the worst of them. It's been a struggle to get up and out of bed for a long time. I was done with pain and fed up with the side effects associated with addiction issues of prescription narcotics. I needed something to help me. I remembered Kratom. I'm a scientist, so I researched the dangers and risks, and I came up with the following information. This is what we're all familiar with. It's an all-natural, safer alternative to opiate pain medications and other prescription drugs, causes few side effects, and unlike opiates, does not cause respiratory depression, which can be deadly. With daily use, you can develop a dependency, as with almost anything, but it's hard to become addicted to Kratom. If you stop use abruptly, like its familiar member, family member coffee, it can lead to withdrawal symptoms, but it's nothing like opiate or addiction that I've been through in my life. So I decided I would use it wisely, responsibly take breaks and always have a plan in place to taper down and off in order to avoid any discomfort. When I wrote this, I wrote six months ago. So this was quite a long time ago. I weaned myself off a month's worth of high-dose Oxycontin and Dilaudid prescribed after major surgery, painlessly using Kratom alone, and I never went back to prescription pain medication again. Once I began taking Kratom again, in a matter of two weeks, I was up and around and no longer living a mostly home and bed-bound existence as I had been for nearly a year again. It relieved my pain, yes, but it also helped the anxiety and depression I've suffered my whole life. 
Kratom improved my quality of life so much that I can't imagine what I would do if it were to become illegal in the United States. Without it, I truly feel I'm as good as dead. It's my goal in life at the time, again, when I wrote this, I wrote, it is my goal in life right now to help people like me who wish to turn away from deadly narcotics and other prescription drugs to Kratom for help with pain, depression, anxiety, and or addiction issues. As I said in my introduction, I am the Lorax. I still speak for the trees, only this tree is a little different from the ones I used to speak for. And I do care. I care a whole awful lot. So I know things are going to get better. This is my story. If you have a similar one, I'm sure you're in the same boat with me. I hope you have found Kratom. And I hope, like me, it's changed your life. All right. That was awesome. Um, I think we covered your background now. (laughs) Yeah. What year year was it when you first discovered Kratom? 2010. 2010, okay. 2010, and it was an interesting discovery because I was in a Lyme disease support group, and someone I'd never met sent me a private message. I made a post describing the withdrawals that I was having. I told my group that I had run out of my narcotics and I was in withdrawals and I was in excruciating pain and I didn't know how I was going to make it through. And one of the Lyme disease support group members sent me a private message saying, have you ever tried this thing called Kratom? And I had no idea what she was talking about. It kind of gave me a a weird vibe because she told me I had to talk to her before trying it. And so I was really hesitant at first, but a few days, a few weeks of going through withdrawal and you'll try anything. And I wound up talking to her and that's how I found Kratom. There were only a few online sites at the time that you could buy Kratom. And she recommended one to me. She told me the instructions on how to use them and it worked. It really worked. It saved me from withdrawals. It saved me from pain. But again, that was back in 2010. And I didn't, I still went back to narcotics after I discovered Kratom for a while. And do you still use it? I don't use it right now. Yeah. I don't feel that I need it right now. I use it occasionally on high pain days. My illness has come a long way and it still has a long way to come. But my pain is pretty well managed and I have different needs uh, than I did when I started using Kratom. But I Mm. used it for a solid five, six years without having to use a narcotic. And the only thing that broke that was major dental surgery that I had a year ago. Um, and that's that that dental surgery is the only time that I've taken narcotics since 2012. 2012 is when I went completely sober from the narcotics and never touched them again until again, they were medically necessary after massive oral surgery. 
So you, you discovered Kraven in 2010. So at what point did you think that there should be advocacy around Kratom? Because it, it's weird with Kratom because there's things like matcha tea, herbal teas that are new to the United States, and they don't seem to be threatened uh, constantly like, like Kratom right. is. So at what point did it signal for you that, hey, we should have some uh, advocacy around this plant? Well, I was an advocate. I've been an advocate for so long, it's hard to remember, but I remember actually clearly that I was part of a group that was called Kratom New and Current Users, and I joined the group when it had less than 500 members, and I became an admin to moderate the group and help people who were trying to get off of narcotics or people that were just trying to use this for pain management or anxiety. And I found myself in the group helping people 12, 14, sometimes 16 hours a day. It just became my passion. And I watched that group become so large at one point before it was shut down by Facebook. It had 30,000 members. I was the person that wrote the rules for the group. I helped write the vendor approval requirements for the group. And I was really active in that. So I was helping people every day. But what I found out and what I discovered during that process was I couldn't figure out why it was so hard for me to get Kratom. And at the time I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, I had no idea if Kratom was illegal anywhere, let alone the very state that I was living in. And that's what made me turn from uh, someone that was helping people on a daily basis to an actual advocate. I decided that there was a need for a leadership organization that would be a voice for a very rapidly growing population of people that was finding this this leaf to help them. And so I segued from being a moderator to helping people introduce them to Kratom and change their lives to this advocacy group where I started the American Kratom Association. And we incorporated in 2014. I had the same vision as several people. I was in talks about creating a nonprofit group with Paul Kemp, who a lot of people are familiar with. Of course, mm-hmm. Paul has been writing about Kratom since before the AKA came around or he wouldn't have been, he was my co-founder for the AKA. And back in the day when we incorporated my best friend, Kathy Minor Rosemond, who I've known since I was 12 years old, was she made the third member of the board. So there was me, Paul Kemp, and my friend, Kathy. And we were the, the original three board members There was one group, it was the Botanical Legal Defense. That's what they called themselves at the time. And what I I noticed was it was a group of industry folks. It was a group of people who owned Kratom businesses. And I really felt the need for a consumer-based advocacy group, a grassroots consumer-based group that would work to uh, defend everybody's right to consume Kratom in every state. 
of the United States. And so that's when living in Tennessee, I realized I wasn't going to be able to be the head of a group that was defending Kratom in an illegal state. So I ended up moving back home to Virginia just so I could lead the and found and lead the American Kratom Association. I think the first import alert was in 2012. Was it like a response to that or was there any uh, indications at that point in 2014 that the DEA was going to try to outlaw it? There was no indication whatsoever at that time that the DEA was going to outlet. There was a lot of negative talk about it. I did over 400 media interviews and I was often quoted next to people like Daniel Fabricant, who at one time was the head of the FDA's dietary supplements branch. And I would go up against people in the FDA and, and opposers of, the use of Kratom, but the import alert didn't really, it it was one thing that was on our list of what we wanted to try and do. We wanted to try to overturn the import alert, but it's something we had to deal with every day without overturning. We didn't have the resources that we needed. We never, we never got those resources. We got the resources. We coming in really big resources coming in in 2016 when the DEA did threaten to ban it. But when the first year the AKA was around, I believe we only had $30,000 that we raised and all of that went to my travel. I was hopping from state to state. Mm. Whenever a state introduced a bill to ban Kratom, I would go there every single time. Um, Florida, I went to Wisconsin to try to undo the ban that they had there. Uh, I went to Alabama. That was my only that was the only place I went where we lobbied and we told our stories there. And it's the only place that we lost our battle in trying to defend a ban. I went to Kentucky. Um, I could list, uh, you know, I could list states, but I don't need to do that now. It's a long ago history. But I have good memories of uh, particularly going to Florida. Florida Mm -hmm. was the biggest battle state that we had. Every year that I was at the AKA, there was another introduction of a bill to ban Kratom. We were up against a lawmaker named Kristen Jacobs. Rest in peace. She has died since then, unfortunately, from cancer. Um, But she was our opponent and she was dead set on banning Kratom in Florida. We decided to send me to Florida to testify at a committee hearing on the bill to ban Kratom. And this makes for an interesting story. The airline canceled my flight because they didn't have the crew to send us to Tallahassee. I was going from Norfolk, Virginia to Tallahassee, Florida. So not a big, not, not two big areas, very, two very small areas to travel from. And my flight was canceled. So I had only a few minutes time the next day to try to make it to the 
hearing and I made it just as they called the last person. I'm, I opened the door and the last person had spoken and people started getting up and leaving. And I had flown all the way to Tallahassee just to go and testify at this hearing and I missed it. And I was just beside myself. I said, well, I'm here and I'm not going to waste this time. I'm going to go introduce myself to the bill's sponsor and I'm going to let him get to know me, get to know my story and see if I can change his his mind. This was the person in the Senate who introduced the bill. It was Senator Greg Evers at the time. And he also, unfortunately, has passed away since then. Um, But he decided that he would wait for me. He would let me wait outside his office all day until he had some time. And it wasn't until 5.30 that he decided to take a break. And he said, you can follow me while I take my break. I don't know how much time I'm going to give you, but follow (laughs) me down while I take my break. And you can give me your spiel and I'll I'll give you my break time is basically what he said. And it was 530 in the evening. So I had waited that entire day. The the hearing that I missed was at 9 a.m. I waited that whole entire day to speak with him. I went around and I talked to some other offices. Nobody was there. I talked to staff mostly, but it was Senator Greg Evers that I really wanted to talk to. So on his break, I started telling him my story and it resonated with him because he had family members and acquaintances who had struggled with narcotics themselves. And we ended up spending two hours together that day, not just his five minute break. He gave me two hours that day. And from that day forward, he was a proponent of Kratom, not an opponent. And he is the reason why Kratom is legal to this day in Florida. He pushed so hard against Kristen Jacobs, who kept introducing bills in the house. And he kept making her not able to make her ban into law because he was the committee chair that the Senate bill would have to go through. A lot of people get confused about this lobby stuff. So let's just say there's got to be two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate, no matter what state you're in, there's got to be two and it's got to pass both the House and the Senate to become a bill. And then it has to get the governor's signature to become a law. So every time she tried to pass it in the House, he would defeat it in the Senate. And so we never saw a ban in Florida. And that was one of my proudest moments. During that trip, I caught the eye of a major, major vendor who comes into play later in this story about the resources that were donated to the AKA. I forgot to mention, though, the there's a, a humorous Um, component to founding the AKA. My good friend at the time was Sebastian Guthrie, and he was the owner of a pretty big Kratom company at the time. It was called Eden's Ethnos, and he ran a site called Kratom K, and he also started a Facebook group called Free Kratom to 
free, I don't remember, it was something about giving away free Kratom and he gave away at least 10,000 samples of Kratom to people who were willing to be advocates for Kratom. And he had the same idea of having a consumer-based nonprofit, but I never, I didn't know this. I I didn't meet him until after I had already met Paul Kemp and I had already been talking to other people about starting the group. But when I was in Tennessee, I had so little money that I had to reach out for Sebastian to help pay for our legal papers to become a nonprofit. And it was so little money. It's embarrassing. I think it was like $125 that I didn't have. And so I called Sebastian and he was like, of course, I'll help you. And we didn't have a name at the time. And he and I spent hours going over, okay, how about this? How about this? How about this? And I really, in my mind, I wanted a perfect acronym and it was Sebastian who suddenly said American Kratom Association and AKA and I was like that is absolutely perfect that is what we're going to go with and so it was Sebastian Guthrie who actually named the organization not me and then he he got the papers and then he stepped away and he never tried to manage the organization again. I was very, very strict about the management of the organization. I didn't let anyone who owned Kratom companies or who sold Kratom, I didn't let them be involved in any management decision or I didn't let them influence any of the decisions that AKA made ever. That was, Hmm. that was, I was very, very strict about that. But my trip to Florida caught the attention of a person who was on his way to having a company that was going to make $10 million off a Kratom product. And we'll just, I'll just, I'll just say what it is now because it was fairly secretive back then because a lot of people blamed it for the FDA coming after Kratom. And it was a product called VivaZen, which was really popular. It was sold in Circle K's and gas stations. Why? Why do you think the state started passing bans? Did it go along with uh, all the uh, the new drug craze with like uh, Flocka, bath salts? They kind of thought that it was uh, along the lines of those things, even though it's not. All, it's completely yes, different. all of the states, all of the states that had banned Kratom by the time we founded the AKA and launched the AKA were victims of these synthetic drug bills they just didn't know what kratom was and it sounded like illegal synthetic drugs it sounded like bath salts it sounded like those kinds of things and it was something that was really popular in in head shops in tobacco shops that's where it gained its popularity and the way that it was sold was often in cartoonish like looking packages that made it look like synthetic drugs so it was just ignorance by people who didn't understand what kratom was in the beginning that led to 
it being illegal, especially in Tennessee, where I lived and where I started the AKA. I was sitting on my back stoop in Tennessee when Sebastian Guthrie and I came up with the name. And I was sitting on the back stoop when I called Paul Kemp and I said, Paul, oh my gosh, you've got to do it. You've got to be my co-founder. We're doing this right now. You're either with me now or you're not with me. And Paul was like, I'm with you. <laughs> and that was that was the best news because he was literally the only known voice um, about, you know, writing about Kratom. And then I needed a third and I thought I was going to be moving to Colorado. And that's why we incorporated in Colorado to begin with, because I thought I was moving there and my best friend lived there. We used her address the first two years that we were in existence because I thought I was going to move there. Um, so that's why we incorporate in Colorado. A lot of people who look into the history often ask, why in the heck did you incorporate in Colorado? Well, it was because I thought I was going to move there and I thought I was going to work there and um, full time. And uh, so it was in October of 2014 when I got my official welcome packet from LegalZoom that had a binder that said American Kratom Association on the outside and it had all of our incorporation papers on the inside and it had a, an official stamp. It was really exciting to receive in the mail and that was October of 2014 and then February of 2015 is when we launched. Going back to the Florida story though and the owner of the company that produced VivaZen. He had a lobby firm in Florida and the lobby firm in Florida was not able to get the time that I was able to get with Senator Evers. So I really caught the attention of this person who had many resources. Then he ended up donating to the AKA a political consulting firm and a media, a PR relations firm. We had $30,000 the first year, but then the second year with in-kind donations, we had a political consulting firm on board for free. And we had a PR relations firm on board for free because those were donated to us. Um, so we had those before the FDA, the DEA threatened to ban in 2016. We had those resources before because I, I made such an impact and such an impression when I was in Florida getting to, getting to Senator Greg Evers and getting him to change his mind. I believe Vivazin is now, uh, it used to be a Canadian company. The okay. owner at the time was Canadian. He was good friends with Mac Haddow. That's how I knew who Mac Haddow was. And we can get into the Mac Haddow phase. Uh, but let's put it off a little bit. I've heard in Tennessee, um, they outlawed it for a time, but the, the, but a loophole uh, of getting it legal there again was they actually said Kratom is synthetic, and, and it was like a mistake in the language. Is, is that true? Yes, that's true. Okay. And you'll, you'll hear different stories with different people, but 
it's basically true that they flipped their decision and it's no longer illegal in Tennessee. When you started AKA now, it was uh, classified as a nonprofit. There's a difference between like 501c3, 501c4, and yes. what is that uh, difference and why was it one 50, instead of the other? So 501c3 is mostly an educational organization and it's nonprofit so you can write it off as as a ta- it's tax exempt so you can write it off you can make donations and write them off because they're just doing education and a very small part of their budget goes towards lobbying we knew we were going to be doing a lot of lobbying so we became a 501c4 and the c4 is for nonprofits that are going to that know they're going to be doing a lot of lobbying. You can't write them off as being tax exempt. That's the main difference between those two. So as much as we wanted to be a 501c3, we knew we weren't going to be spending most of our time doing education. We knew we were going to be out there lobbying and battling bills, ban bills. It it seemed like the first two years, all I did was hop from state to state defending Kratom. Like I mentioned some of the states before, but I'm remembering Georgia and Louisiana and different states where we went to either try and reverse bans or to make sure that bans didn't get into place. And in our history, while I was with the organization, I mentioned the only place we lost where we went and we told our stories was Alabama. And that was a big loss. That was a big disappointing loss because Mm. we had a lot of great volunteers that went there. I, I even spent a week there and we really worked our asses off. And that was just... It was against us. The odds were against us in the beginning. They had the sheriff and they had law enforcement and they had uh, the recovery industry opposed to us. And it was just a losing battle from the start. So that, that was a bummer. But every single state we went to where we told personal testimonies and where bills were introduced to ban Kratom, we wound up on the winning side. We wound up keeping it legal except for Alabama. So that was, we proved ourselves to be a worthy organization within the first two years. And that was, you know, before the August 31st, 2016 announcement that came. We really wanted to focus on education. We were hoping to focus on preservation of natural resources, but we never got to that because we were putting out fires. It was literally a game of whack-a-mole. Every time we put one ban bill to bed, another one would pop up. And every year when states would start their legislative sessions, which they do every year, some states are every other year, but it's always the beginning of the year, We felt like we were playing a game of whack-a-mole going from state to state to overturn attempts at 
at banning North Carolina was a big state back then that tried to ban it. Um, what year was that? There, that was in 2016. Okay. I was already back that, in Pennsylvania. I lived yeah, there for 12 years. Yeah, it was years. way back. Yeah. yeah, no, that was that was 2016. And, and we had a very, very influential advocate back then in a woman named Elizabeth Gardner who helped she owned she started a couple of kava shops during that year and she helped hire lobbyists to go in North Carolina to make sure we didn't lose North Carolina because that would have been that would have been a huge loss and that would have really mm-hmm. influenced a lot of other states yeah. But we were always we were always putting fires out and it felt like if we weren't fighting a ban in a state, then we were fighting problems with the import alert. Every year, people thought the import alert was new because, as you know, they they republish it with new names yeah. every every several months verbatim, or so. pretty much it's verbatim it's about they once a year add, they do a big one i think yeah yeah well it used to be every three months or so they would add more companies on the import alert list um but and there was one year that they had a really big seizure it was either 2015 or 2016 they seized about a million and a half worth of kratom um, because of the import alert. And they put they put a big company out of business. I don't remember the name of the company, but it felt like in those first few years, and and it always it has felt like since then. It seems like that it's just it's a game of whack a mole. One state gets gets the idea they want to ban it and it's like a wildfire spreads to another state what groups are mostly leading the charge for a ban is it other moneyed interests uh that think kratom's going to compete with their product or you know a lot of people think it's big pharma i think it's the herbal supplement industry yeah. I think that's the biggest competitor i think those are the ones that want to see this illegal and they're the ones that in 2012, I think it was, they wrote a letter to Daniel Fabricant, who was then head of supplements for the FDA. He, they wrote a letter to him saying they thought that Kratom was dangerous and that it shouldn't be imported into the United States. And soon after he received that letter, the import alert took effect. So. Yeah. It was, uh, and he three. was also from the supplements industry. He was from the Natural Products Association. Yes. So, there, so it was like yes. such an obvious case of revolving door, uh, the, the fox guard in the hen house type of thing. Very much so. And it was the three largest dietary supplement organizations, trade industry groups in the country that wrote this letter. There was only one organization that uh didn't write it and was that they were actually proponents they were actually on our side and that was ahpa the american herbal products association we had them on there on our side and they helped us 
when it came to the ban, they they wrote a letter in support of Kratom. So three of the four major dietary supplement trade industry groups were highly, highly opposed to Kratom. And they got their wish. They got the import alert in effect. And the fourth the American Herbal Products Association was with us and worked with us and helped a great deal. Are, are they still active uh, with Kratom? They're not active with Kratom anymore, but I bet you if there was a ban proposed, they would become active again. I kind of wanted to talk about like the, the lead up to the DEA thing. How early before that announcement did you get any indication that the DEA might be considering uh, Schedule 1? Was it just at that announcement or we had you heard absolutely before? Absolutely no clue. In fact, we wow. thought the announcement was we thought the announcement was fake. We thought it was a joke at first. And the way that I found out about it is I woke up First thing in the morning, what I did every single day was the AKA was largely a group that was active on Facebook. That was that was our our main organizing grounds. And so like I did every single morning, I woke up and the first thing I did was check my messages on Facebook, my direct messages. And I had a message from an acquaintance, someone I didn't know very well, but he said, hey, Susan, have you seen this? And do you have any idea if it's real? And I clicked the link and it was to the Federal Register. And the moment I saw that it was to the Federal Register, my heart just sunk. I mean, I knew there was no way that it was fake. Mm -hmm. I knew it was real. And at that time, we had our in-kind donated political team called National Strategies Incorporated. And so they go by NSI. And so I called the head of NSI and I said, Al, where did this come from? What, how, how could this possibly have happened? And no one knew, no one had any clue that this was coming. It was the biggest shock of my life. I was supposed to leave September 1st to move to Portland. And this happened on August 31st, 2016. So talk about a surprise to me. We scrambled. We had a little bit of money in the bank, but, and we had the PR firm that was helping us. And thankfully the National Strategies Incorporated, NSI, Thankfully, they were there to help calm me down and say, let's be strategic about this. Let's figure out the teams we need to defeat this and let's do it. Let's we're not going to just let this happen. We're going to put up a fight. They are the ones that organized a week's worth of auditions, I, I would say, but a week worth of interviews for firms that we knew we needed on board. We knew we needed a public relations firm. We knew we needed a legal law firm. We knew we needed the National Strategies Incorporated, which was the political resource firm. And then we knew we needed lobbyists. And we knew we needed 
senators and we knew we needed Senator Orrin Hatch. So Senator Hatch is where Mac Haddell comes into the picture. And I met Mac. I didn't meet him, but I knew of Mac through National Strategies Incorporated. He came highly recommended. He was the only lobbyist in the country familiar with Kratom, the, the only one. He was the only lobbyist in the country that was working on Kratom who knew, who knew anything about it. And he just so happened to run Senator Hatch's first Senate campaign. And I think it was 1978. Yeah. So he was close to Senator Hatch. So we did our series of interviews and we came up with a variety of firms. No law firm would give us over a 5% chance of, of winning this. And these were law firms that wanted us to hire them. And they wouldn't give us more than a 5% chance, even the one that we hired. The one that we hired was a little bit more positive, a little bit more than 5%, but not much. We were given really bad odds. <laughs> this was like taking on the largest drug enforcement agency in the country. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it had never been done before in history like Fuck this. yeah, no, it hasn't. So, yeah. Uh, and we... This was yes. at the end of August and September uh, that you were amassing all the all this legal and and lobbyist firm help uh yes. after the DEA announced September already September I believe it was September yeah. 17th we already had a march to Washington under our belt I yeah. mean that's how fast things went but go ahead what period of time did you go on the doctors and and uh they were filming Leaf of Faith cuz cuz a lot of people who me like the first time I was hired to write for Kratom Science, the first thing I did was watch with Leaf of Faith. This was still prior to so the doc up to the doctors the... was later. No, the doctors okay. was the doctors was earlier. So we're still in the okay. the early period for before the DEA came out with this proposal. The doctors episode aired, and that was the episode yeah. where myself. Chris Bell, the director of A Leaf of Faith, and Dr. Murray Holcomb, who was an advocate to the core for us. He would show up wherever he was needed, and he uh, basically told me he would go wherever I told him to go. Even after I left the AKA, he was committed to me because... I was the only person who ever answered the phone when he was trying to call and, and find how he could get involved in the fight. And we needed doctors on our side. We had very few doctors at the time. We had very few medical professionals mm -hmm. at the time that would speak out for Kratom. And he had a son who had a personal story. So we all went on the doctors together. It was a bit of a joke. I was not given much time to speak. Yeah. The only it's question TV. I was asked on that show, I go, I get all prepared. They tell me to get ready to tell my story. 
get ready to tell my background, get ready to tell all of this. They spent the producers spent hours with me and we get on the show. And the only question I'm asked is where do you buy Kratom? (laughs) And it was just such a letdown for me. And every time I tried to speak, I was basically given the hand. Daniel Fabricant, who, again, was the head, not at the time, he was with the National Natural Products Association by then, but at one time, he was head of dietary yeah, supplements. Yeah, he was in the Natural Products Association, then he became head of dietary supplements at the FDA, then he went back through the revolving door and he became CEO. CEO of natural products after he had instituted a, uh, or at least worked on the uh, Kratom import alert, but he was on his doctor show and you can see it on YouTube. I'll put the clip in the um, description and basically everybody on the Kratom side, Chris Bell, uh, Dr. Holcomb and you come off as sincere and these guys come (laughs) off as uh, cocky. Yeah, they do. They come off as cocky bullies. And, and comments on the YouTube video. Video are mostly positive for the kratom side, and it's and it's kind of like one of those things where this wasn't talked about. TV isn't the format to talk about it enough, right? This was the first time we had national television exposure. It was the full deal. I was met at the airport by a limousine that took me to NBC Studios, or it might not have been NBC, but I think it was NBC. Um, I had a hotel room. I was put up in a really nice hotel room and, um, it was, you know, it was the real deal. And I thought, I'm going to show America what Kratom's all about. And I'm going to tell them the truth and I'm going to go on there and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And all I did was get asked where I, where you buy Kratom. (laughs) Yeah. And of course the answer was online. And that then led to the discussion about how it's unregulated. And at the time, we lost that battle all the time. We did not have all of these GMP vendors that we do now. That's something that I credit not just the AKA for, but other organizations that have come and gone. They dedicated themselves to getting businesses GMP compliant so that if the FDA had complaints about them, at least we were compliant, at least at least the businesses were compliant with uh, their own regulatory requirements and guidelines. So yeah. Um, so that that was all before the DEA proposed its ban. And those were fun times going to Los Angeles and then and going to Las Vegas, Nevada. That's where we filmed my part of A Leaf of Faith. Mm -hmm. That was another highlight of me being at the head of the AKA at the time was that I did get to be in A Leaf of Faith. That was one of my favorite things that came out of our advocacy at at that time. Mm. There was another, there was a show on um, 
now I forgot the name, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. So there were really fun, there were fun stories we did. We didn't, it wasn't all negative. It wasn't all hopping, jumping, putting out fires. There were a lot of fun things. And one mm-hmm. of the fun things was helping to, was being a producer for the show that Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia did on Kratom. I was the person who set up the interview with the vendor and I'm the one that took him through a company and showed him how companies were managed. And I, I had on producer hat for a day and they gave me microphone and, you know, whole, whole setup to help produce the episode. It was really cool. I got to do a lot of fun things in the early days. Where was that? Was that, uh, in Indonesia or somewhere? No, we he he filmed part of it in in, in, in Indonesia. In but Thailand, the part that I, I helped produce, yeah, the part that I helped produce was out just outside of San Diego, where okay. this company it was actually Sebastian Guthrie's company that they came and visited. It's all in the beginning. It's all about the danger. It makes it seem like there's a war going on in Indonesia over kratom and it makes it seem a little more or was that thailand um, i mean i know the thailand one because it, it was like he was going yes. out and 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 getting uh illegal kratom you know uh that's it i i've been reading a lot on reddit uh back from that time that's like uh this is never gonna happen it's gonna be illegal um were there like were there like people panicking and mass buying uh, oh absolutely oh yeah oh heck yeah yeah and i imagine like your funding got blew up that year and and was that like hard to manage and funding blew up yeah. Um was hard to manage because yeah. it was basically just me and Paul and my friend and, and was- I had two other people that were were on the board but they were just there to help with the Facebook group to manage people and as soon as that happened the funding blew up and we had the money that we needed to hire the teams of people that we needed. Um, I forgot when I mentioned, I left out, of course, the scientific um, arm that we had to put together, Mm -hmm. the eight factor analysis. That was, that was major. We did so much in 30 days. Yes, it was Mm -hmm. Jack Henningfield. We, We did so much in 30 days. It's really hard to, and then of course it stretched out because they, there we had such a public outcry that they actually had, uh, they opened up a public comment period which had never been done before, um, but and I think we got twenty three thousand something like twenty three thousand comments on the federal register, and then we. <laughs> got over 130,000 signatures that went to the president at the time. Um, we had a march on Washington, D.C. that had about four to 600 people there. Mm. Um, we did all of this in the first 30 days. And then in the time between uh, the 30 days and the public comment period being open, um, and like I said, 
we, when we were doing the interviews for the law firms in particular, we were given 5% chance of, of winning something like this. And it was one of the highest compliments I've ever received after this was all over that our legal team at the time, the head of the legal team basically said, Susan, this couldn't have been done without you. I never brag about my time then because it was a team effort and there were other groups involved like the Botanical Legal Defense, which turned, which changed their name to Botanical Education Alliance. Um, we couldn't have pulled off a lot of this stuff without them. But the one thing I like to brag about is that the law firm that we hired, I got one of the nicest emails when we won and basically saying, if not for the grassroots and if not for the work done pulling the grassroots together and all of these studies together, this that we would not have won. And Jack Henningfield made that public. He said that were it not for these stories, we never would have won. Kratom would be illegal now. Imagine mm-hmm. all of the millions of dollars of sales that have gone on since that time. The amount of money that has been made since then just... I mean, it's it's not quantifiable. It's just not quantifiable. At the time, we estimated there were about three to five million consumers of Kratom in the United States. And now that estimate is somewhere around 15 million. I don't know mm-hmm. how they get that number, but that's that's where that number is. Yeah, I think um, there's uh, there should be better sur- surveys of that, but it's in the millions, definitely. Yeah, 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 we need we need to be better better surveys. Yeah. But basically, I know that to quantify it, the AKA or the AKA hired somebody out to measure basically how much was coming in the United States, what a dose was, and dividing that somehow. But we don't need to get into that. That's too yeah. cute. That's too complicated. It's all estimates. But the the fact that the DEA came back and reversed their decision was the first time in history that that ever happened and that that was just history making right there and it's and it's awesome and and you were involved in it and just thank you that you did that so and and everybody that was involved it was awesome thank the team the the team that came together was really the best that money could buy and that's because some vendors saw the benefit in investing in the aka and made us able to hire the teams that we did next week part two of my interview with susan ash she talks about the importance of media working with kratom farmers in indonesia and her exit from the aka to then be accused of things that are laughable. It destroyed my brain, it destroyed my spirit, and it destroyed my heart. The AKA was my blood, sweat, and tears. The music is Risey, Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.